0: Welcome to the first episode of the Inkwell podcast. My name is Link McElvany, and I'm a Shiatsu therapist from Melbourne, Victoria. This series is a collection of interviews and conversations with holistic health practitioners. In the first episode, we are introducing Scott Brisbane, who is one of my teachers at the Australian Shiatsu College. Scott practices craniosacral therapy, acupuncture and homeopathy and has a range of interests that we'll be exploring today. We are also joined by Jeremy Nemair who has been mentoring me for over three years now. Jeremy is an acupuncturist and martial artist and an exceptionally intelligent man. There are a few audio problems with Jeremy's microphone during the first 20 minutes, but rest assured they do clear up after that point. So thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the podcast. through the podcast, but essentially just for the listeners' uh, benefit, I just get uh, you to explain like who you are or what kind of training you've had as a practitioner. Uh,
1: who am I? Who are you? Well, my name is Scott Brisbane, yeah. and um, I am a naturopath. And I trained in the 1980s in uh, at the Southern School of Natural Therapies. About two years into my training, um, I realised uh, that I wanted to be an acupuncturist as well. So I trained as an acupuncturist and uh, graduated in the late 80s as an uh, acupuncturist and naturopath. And I started practising in 1988-1989 and... Um, have gone through various evolutions since then. You were mentioning just before
0: we started uh, the various fads that you've gone through as a practitioner.
1: Yes, I have got uh, a history of um, going through fads, but I don't go through fads in 12 months. I go through fads over about uh, at least six years, I would say. you know, I have six-year fads. So I started off uh, being interested in acupuncture and massage Um as a practitioner, and uh, based a lot of my practice in the early days as a, an acupuncturist and masseur, um, but also at that same time, my naturopathic interest was homeopathy, and quite specifically constitutional homeopathy. Ooh, what What do you mean by that?
0: Like, if, like physical constitution rather than emotional, or what's the?
1: Oh, constitutional homeopathy is where you actually take a uh, uh, an entire picture of the person. An emotional picture, a physical picture, and it's a, a, the, um, the consultation is ki- kind of um, fairly deep. And you go into a, uh, a, a long history, and you're trying to actually match a um, specific remedy to the person. And it's a deep-acting constitutional remedy for that person. And uh, it's, it's a uh, difficult science to um, master. And uh, I found it too difficult, actually. Wait, so, is it
0: like, it sounds quite similar to like holistic thought in general or the concepts of sort of Chinese medicine and the way that they diagnose. Is there some difference between the idea of constitutional homeopathy and.
1: The idea of constitutional homeopathy and um, Chinese medicine has a lot of similarities um, from the point of view that. Uh, In constitutional homeopathy, you want to know the temperature of the person. You want to know if they're a hot person, a cold person, or a person in the middle. Um, How they respond to the environment. Um, You want to know all the quirky little things in constitutional homeopathy that is highly individual to them. Their responses to uh, going outside, their responses to... Oh, everything, Link, everything. Um, You you build up a picture of uh, what makes them feel good and what makes them feel bad. You build up a picture of all their ailments. You go through each system in the body uh, from head to toe. Uh, You find out how they tick mentally, um, which is really interesting because the constitutional uh, remedies, um, the mental picture is really important the mental picture is very, very important when you're prescribing constitutionally because uh, um, it's the quirks, the nature of the person where you um, find the perfect match constitutionally.
0: And so, like, that's where you came into it. Was there any reason in particular why you were interested in constitutional homeopathy?
1: I was interested in constitutional homeopathy, Link, because... um, The two most inspiring teachers at the Southern School of Natural Therapies at the time were teaching me constitutional homeopathy. Sure. Yeah. So the the teacher often sort of guides it rather than... Yeah, I had had (coughs) an interest in homeopathy because homeopathy actually blew me away a little bit because I came from a science background initially. I'm a um, a math science teacher, secondary school teacher. Cool. And um, homeopathy blew me away because... uh, if you scientifically analyse the what's in these remedies, there's nothing in them, Link. Yeah, and this is this is something
0: that um like my housemate, for instance, is uh like he studies genetics and and various scientific things, and he's asked me before like, so what do you think about the homeopathy thing? And um I was spoken to Jeremy about how I f- feel that homeopathy is uh, like an easy target, I guess, for a lot of people who are um members of the Church of Science, as we like to put it sometimes, Um, uh, or people who are, I guess, sort of interested in, like, real skepticism and atheism as some sort of um, dogmatic ideology, I guess you could say. So, how do you... uh, Do you attempt to explain homeopathy to people or do you let it explain itself through
1: you know, giving you know, out? ah, know uh, Homeopathy is um, hard to explain to people. Yeah. Um, there are various explanations that you can give, but basically the, the main epi- uh, explanation that uh, homeopaths give is that it's a little bit like immunization or vaccination, okay. although it's not Like vaccination at all, because in vaccination they actually do give a physical constituent to the person, and the person's immune system responds and reacts to that. Yeah, and it's the response that you're actually looking for with immunisation and vaccination. With homeopathy, you are looking for the response. What you're doing is you're giving something in homeopathy, a uh, an energetic dose of something that the body responds to. Now let's be quite clear here the homeopath is giving something that would be in repeated doses dangerous for the person but what they're looking for is they're looking for the person's uh, system to respond to that remedy and in the in the uh, process of responding to the remedy they knock out the existing disease okay okay so th- it's 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 a uh, uh, that's um that's that's the explanation of, uh, of giving a homeopathic remedy. Um, you give the remedy, the uh, person sees the remedy as uh, something which is um, potentially dangerous and more dangerous than the disease that they have in the body currently. Okay. They respond to that danger and in the process of responding to the danger, they knock out and eliminate the disease that's actually occurring.
0: Cool. Um, and this has something to do with consciousness, from my understanding? Like, what is, in the dilution of it, or not consciousness, but maybe the structure of, of water or the structure of, uh, of the dilution, like, what's the idea
1: behind... I'm a little bit out of touch with um, where homeopathy has gone. Like, when I learnt iridology back in the 1980s at the Southern School of Natural Therapies... I've, I kind of had a discussion with somebody who was into iridology about 15 or 20 years later and I'd realised that uh, iridology had kind of like um, gone ahead leaps and bounds. But with regards to homeopathy, I think that people are, are um, describing homeopathy as being a, um, an energy principle and yeah. that the, the, uh, the structure of water, a little bit like that dude in um,
0: the Japanese scientist. Yeah,
1: the Japanese guy who took the photographs of the crystals, and uh, he would put Mozart, sing Mozart to the to the water, and get a, a, a certain crystal, etc. And uh, w- we think, we uh, I think that that's what's happening in homeopathy. That um, the structure of the water is changed maybe the um, molecular bonds or the angle between the water and the hydrogen or the oxygen and the hydrogen but I'm not really sure well,
0: you had an interesting take Jeremy on this hill other day do you want to like share what you were thinking about it
2: uh, okay so it's a little bit left field uh, but I, I have this idea that uh, yeah, so we don't really understand consciousness and there are things that happen when a human being puts consciousness into material objects there's a like there's, a, there's something that happens. Uh, material objects can be transmuted by consciousness. And my favorite example of this in art is Mark Rothko. Uh, do you know Mark Rothko?
1: I do. Yeah. I love Rothko. Yeah,
2: so uh, um, kids, little kids will stand in front of his paintings and they'll look at it and they'll feel sad. And there's no, there's no mechanical reason, there's no psych, color psychological reason for them to feel sad. He was just such a sad person and he imbued his paintings with, with the feelings he was feeling as he painted them. And so their sadness remains inside of the canvas even though he painted it 60, 70 years ago. Um, and yeah, so uh, I have this idea that um, in... in home, uh, So Hahneman, I think? I don't know if this is... Uh, uh, this is an anecdotal story I heard. But at the start of his career, when he was making a dilution, he had to um, shake it... A, a, really large number of times. Uh, But by the end of his career it was quite a small number and it was quite a mathematical kind of series of things but much much smaller. So this to me, if, if this is a fact, this to me suggested that at the start of his career his consciousness was not so focused and not so like it didn't have the the structures of thought that he had later in his career that allowed him to like to meditate on that thing with such intensity that he could create a similar Uh, transmutation of the matter of that water with a much smaller amount of consciousness in a much smaller amount of time. So maybe the mechanism, maybe homeopathy works and we don't understand it because we haven't yet explored this mechanism of how how a human being changes matter by consciousness and maybe it's the clearest and most accurate way to assess that because really um, when you make a diagnosis you're you're creating a shape of consciousness that matches something that you're seeing in a patient and and then you're, you're channeling that, that concentration in a very, very particular and very detailed shape of consciousness into this remedy. Or someone else has done that consciousness imbuing and you're m- mapping that
1: uh, in reality. So that's kind of the way I think about uh,
2: a p- p- possible way of
1: explaining. Jeremy, I'm really happy with, uh, to go with anything along those lines because it makes sense. And it, and it does kind of um, uh, match what the Japanese... We should know his name. Yeah, like, it's fine. I'm going to edit his name in
0: now. (laughs) The man we are referring to is Masaru Emoto. Um, Yeah, so you're
1: saying. Yeah, no. Well, there's a few things that I wanted to respond to. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to go with the, the consciousness idea, and I, I'd say that there are people actually probably thinking about that already and uh, meditating into their little bottles of water. Uh, there, w- there was also a guy around the turn of the century who actually infused his bottles of water with sunlight, and then, no, I don't think he actually sold it, but he actually would then sell the bottles of sun-infused water not necessary sell. I just said sell twice, but um, and give it to people. Uh, it would uh, dispense and and heal the people. But with regards to what Hahnemann was doing, Hahnemann was a scientist and uh, and I I believe a uh, initially a, a botanist, and um, and so they therefore kind of interested in herbal medicine. And um, I kind of uh, did read about Samuel Hahnemann's history, and I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on it, but I do know how he came, became interested in homeopathy and um, he approached homeopathy very scientifically so one of the things that he did with uh, his um, investigation into homeopathy was that he found what he called sensitive um, i was going to say clients but sensitive people these were people that were highly reactive and responsive to the the environment and seemed to have uh, a lot of peculiar individual symptoms and he then proceeded to um, experiment on them. And his experiments were, he would give them a, uh, a, a particular homeopathic remedy uh, and repeat the dosage enough for them to start producing symptoms. He would then write down all of the symptoms that they seemed to produce after taking that remedy for a period of time and then uh, map all of the people and he would see that in everyone that took this one particular remedy that they ended up with just, say, uh, cold feet. And they all came back and said, hell, my feet are really cold. And that became a real marker for the remedy to be given to people. And if they, if they, they, uh, they came back with, uh, I've been a little bit obsessive lately and I've been counting all the time. Everything that I do, I seem to be counting. That would be a strong mental symptom for the particular remedy that he actually gave. Now he called these experiments provings. That was called proving the remedy. And he, he did a lot of these provings with a lot of remedies. And uh, subsequently, they came out with um, with books of you know like a, a common uh, homeopathic remedy is um, nat Myrrh. Now natrum Myrrh is uh, a common salt, sea salt. And uh, so, uh, if you look at the uh, the uh, what sea salt is um, or uh, sea salt is um, used for homeopathically is a really interesting mental picture. Now, most of that mental picture is based on Samuel Hahnemann's provings, which was kind of of this exhaustive scientific process. With regards to uh, another aspect of what you were talking about, Jeremy, he was actually, actually, um, one of the things that happens with um, homeopathy is that the shaking process that goes on between dilutions, <coughs> excuse me, um, it's called succussing, and uh, you can succuss uh, uh, between between dilutions, and uh, the dilutions tend to be uh, one in ten or one in a hundred. But what happens is the more dilute the process is, the more succussive processes you go through, uh, according to the constitutional homeopathy that I learnt, the, 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 the substance, the substrate, the water, becomes more and more pure, the energy becomes more and more pure, and it becomes more suited to the complaints that are actually on the mental level and the emotional level of the person. So the lower potencies, the ones where there's less dilutions, the ones which are closer to the physical dose, are used for um, more physical complaints. And the higher potencies are used for more emotional and mental complaints. But there's another aspect here. The higher potencies tend to be used for people who are um, more sensitive, really. Uh, And the lower potencies... Tend to be used for the people who are uh, more physically based in their symptoms. <coughs> I'm not sure how that relates to what you were talking about, because I was interested in what you were talking about as well, Jeremy. You know, like, uh, but uh, yeah, just to explain what what his processes were, he he came from that scientific background, yeah, which was interesting.
0: Well, yeah, because he talked about like sensitive people and, and testing on sensitive people, and I think about this a lot because. Um, in some ways I feel that I'm a sensitive person to certain things, especially to certain, I guess, dietary requirements and not as bad as like, I'm not a celiac and various things like that, but changing my diet drastically had a huge effect on my life. Um, and then I talked to certain other people who are able to eat or, or push themselves in certain ways and it doesn't really affect them in the same way. And um, I think of that in terms of some of these medicines as well. Like, would you say that um depending on how sensitive the person is uh that should guide them towards one medicine or another um in terms of cuz it's hard to prove to somebody who's not sensitive of the effects it's having on their body or like if somebody's never meditated before for example they won't or they don't understand the sensations in their body to then give them a treatment um shiatsu whatever it is like there's all these subtle things going on that they're just not aware of. Um, so yeah, I don't know, Is there? have you got any thoughts on on that kind of thing? With
1: sensitive? Yeah, I find it kind of annoying actually. I much prefer to treat sensitive people than um, people who are less so. But uh, the way I figure it is that, um, and what I say to my clients um, with craniosacral therapy, which is my latest kind of love and passion, um because craniosacral therapy tends to um be a little bit different people are so much accepting of having needles jabbed in their body invading their physical space yeah. penetrating their skin yep. rather than have what somebody gently hold their shoulders or hold their feet and uh yeah, Jeremy uh, as well <laughs>
0: in fact in this very room uh yeah
2: yeah, so I had an interesting experience, and uh, Link and I got in the habit of, like, we're, we're trying to sneak everything into everything. So wherever we go, we're trying to make art. If we get a chance to, to touch people or heal people, we'll just try and, you know, just try and touch people wherever we can. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I happened to uh, get an opportunity to um, work on this uh, woman's shoulders. Uh, but I was doing this, uh, I'd just seen my osteo a little while before, and I was working on um, how to access structures of the shoulders just by um, downward pressure. So I just started feeling around. No, I, I was making massive changes just by stretching out attachments through her shoulders, uh, and she started getting a little bit, uh, a little bit uncomfortable. And she turned to me and she said, "Oh, have you ever had an experience where someone touches you and it feels like they're about to massage you, but then they don't do anything? <laughs> but me- <laughs> but meanwhile, I'm like I'm t- as she's doing as she's saying this, I'm doing stuff. But yeah, she just has no, she doesn't have the somatic awareness to to register it. And so rather rather than sitting inside of the changes, she's actively denying the changes and probably reversing the changes through frustrated expectation. Yeah, so I don't know, people are funny.
1: Yeah, I find this really, really annoying, but um, uh, I do say to my clients that they have varying degrees of sensitivity um, to treatments and that it doesn't necessarily matter and that what they should concern themselves about is the uh, result rather than the process and they should also just relax because they are lying down and they'll be there for 50 minutes and they should just kind of like, um, you know, not off, if not literally, just sort of physically at least, just sort of soften because the process, generally speaking, um, even if they do not notice the energetics of what's actually happening, they will notice a general relaxation after a while. The other thing that I think in regards to this, is that um, oh, I had another thought and it's a good thought too, and I, I was just... Oh, yeah. the um, in, um, in yoga philosophy, they have five layers, five layers of kind of um, almost perception and the layers are really, really simple. The first layer, or, or the, the most solid layer, is the physical layer. The next layer is the energetic layer, or the pranamaya layer. The le- next layer is the s- emotional layer. The next layer is the intellectual layer. And the last layer is the bliss layer. And what they say human beings do is that they focus their attention on one or two of those layers most of the time. And so some people are really focused in the physical and they don't necessarily um, pick up the subtle changes that actually occur or the energetic changes that occur during an acupuncture treatment or a bodywork treatment. So um, that kind of helps me understand what those guys are like. I've done some wild treatments on people who can't feel anything and I've done some relatively quiet still treatments and the people who are really, really sensitive saying they're tingling all over the place, they've got shifts happening here, there and everywhere and uh, it's kind of interesting. And uh, so I've moved to the spot that what's important during the treatment is actually what I'm sensing and feeling and if the client senses and feels something, that that's okay, but uh, it's not important at all well
0: for being a relatively new practitioner um i still rely somewhat on feedback and so i'm starting to trust my own judgment more and i guess now that my pulse diagnosis is getting you know a little better and i'm doing it more often i'm able to clarify at the end oh, i felt that was good treatment or, or what have you but um yeah it seems like there's a little bit of a balancing act there like you you do you <laughs> well i don't know do you how do you do? You even play that game of uh, giving the client what they seem to want, rather than just treating their body. Like, do you do you placate their emotional or particular um, mental hang-ups? I guess you could say, or way that they think. So, that do you, do you try to put that at ease in some way, so that you can
1: continue working with them, or do you just kind of? I try and explain to them what I'm doing. I try to... Um, these days, uh, my clients come to me for a specific reason. So most of the time, they're coming for craniosacral therapy, they're coming for acupuncture, and um, or they've been referred to me because I do craniosacral therapy or acupuncture. Um, their expectations of what it might be can sometimes be way out, especially with craniosacral therapy because it is so light. The touch is incredibly uh, light. Um, Do I try to placate them? No, I don't. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. No, I do. I just do. Uh, like uh, I, I placate them with my words. I just say, "This is this is it." You know, like uh, what's what's happening right now is what's happening, whether you can feel it or not. Basically, um, yeah. oh, I, I have an interesting thing. Uh, so
2: uh, I use a lot of moxa, <coughs> and I use a lot of moxa uh, down the uh, bladder channel, especially. And, uh, um, but one of the things that Moxa allows me to do is to point out to patients that um, they feel, uh, even though it's burning evenly through their back, they feel parts of it are hotter and parts of it are cooler. Uh, so they, they can experience directly the fact that what they feel isn't necessarily what's happening in their body. And that, um, another thing that happens is that as they get, as their body repairs itself, they get more sensitivity. So the fact that they can't feel what I'm doing is a sign that they they can take on board and and start to realise that there are these silences and these blind spots in their experience, and um, those are often the places where they will get the most change or the most growth out of. Uh, yeah, so I don't know, like, because the yeah, I'm always trying to get them to to look at themselves or to um, yeah to increase their awareness. Uh, before you are talking about the four sheaths, and this is really interesting to me because it's a similar thing with. Uh, people in their senses, like people may be more visually oriented or more um, orally oriented or, or whatnot. Uh, but once you realize this then there's scope to, to develop these other areas and uh, it's the same with these sheaths of the of a person, like uh, we have a tendency to, to stay in the physical or the intellectual or the intellectual, you know, the, we, we specialize, uh, but the the idea that these other sheaths exist uh, suggests that there's something to be cultivated there and that um, yeah, the, the direction is not from the thing that's like, you know, you press a point and it's really painful. That's probably not the cause of the thing. The the cause will be somewhere where you touch it and it feels like nothing. It feels uh, a, a hollowness or an emptiness or something. It's
1: a, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I had a point now. I'm rambling. Um, can I respond to that? Yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, because um, I've got a, f- uh, a few ideas from what you were saying. Um, one is that i I am into the whole idea of educating the clients um, more recently uh, training as a yoga teacher uh, I really enjoy teaching and I really uh, feel like it kind of um, uh, the part of me that wants to educate clients is becoming more fulfilled through being a yoga teacher. The craniosacral thing is really interesting, though, you know, like there are two different forms of craniosacral therapy, and I and, and I, I learnt both of them. Of them. First, uh, there's the biomechanical approach, and the biomechanical approach is where the practitioner kind of does it to you, the client. The biodynamic approach is where the practitioner acts as a facilitator, and what happens in the process is that the person's body heals itself, whether they know it or not. And uh, so I, I actually do the biodynamic style of craniosacral therapy. And there are a lot of interesting ways to explain biodynamic craniosacral therapy but really what's happening in biodynamic craniosacral therapy is that um, you're entering into a relationship with the person and you are energetically aware of what you're doing with regards to that relationship you're giving that person space to be and explore who they are and to move closer to who they are you are creating space for them and uh, allowing uh, the relationship to breathe and have room and space so you're actually uh, continually aware of kind of where they actually want you in space so energetically you're manipulating your own energy so as they have plenty of room to be who they actually are Thirdly, or whether this thirdly or fourthly, you try and be yourself completely because you're a mirror and all relationships are a mirror. So the closer you are aligned to your own center, to your own spirit, um, they kind of get the idea that it's a safe place. This person is being who they are. So therefore, the client can move closer to to themselves and in the process healing occurs this, this is kind of like um, not the explanation that I give the person on the table I can imagine <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it, and it's, it's really interesting you say that because when I think about some of the most life-changing things uh, con margaritas uh, not necessarily the treatments I received of him but learning from him um, and meeting him and just how centered he seemed to be or how 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 him he seemed to be mm. and my reaction was do you have any books i can read you know like <laughs> um what what can i do and and the, i i wanted to ask you about this idea of space um because well for me it's interesting like uh, given that shiatsu therapy is so intimate um and there is it's uh it's a for a lot of people it's a very blurry line between being touched by someone you know in a in a in a confined space so um i'm often uh, in my own mind regulating what i'm feeling or how i'm thinking about that person because um i don't want to i don't know I, you know give them the wrong idea for one for one sense i don't want to Send them the wrong kind of, <laughs> for lack of a more concise word, you know, vibrational energies, like from my emotional state or what I'm thinking or how I'm feeling.
2: It's like you don't want to impinge on their space. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, or at least I want to sit in this in their space in a way that they're comfortable with 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 me. Um,
1: but yeah, uh. comfort's really important. It's the most common question that I ask the client uh, whether they're comfortable or not and if there's anything that I can do to help them to be comfortable. But the comfort actually comes from the process of giving people space. This is the same as uh, bringing up children. If you give children space, it allows them to be themselves, purely and simply. Yeah. I had a uh, craniosacral teacher who um, had an operation on her knee and she specifically asked the surgeon to have good thoughts while the knee was being operated on. And that's fair enough. Look, I actually think that um, while we're being uh, practitioners and while we're treating, we're um, trying to do the best we can but we have good days and we have bad days and we have uh, lots of things going on in our own lives as well. And uh, as a practitioner, what I try to be is I try to be authentic rather than um, some sort of uh, um, spiritual ideal. In fact, I think being authentic is being a spiritual ideal, actually. yeah. yeah. So in other words, you know, like I'm not sitting there pretending to be above anyone. I'm not sitting there pretending to uh, know more than the person. In fact, I, I am trying uh, a lot in the process to communicate to them that the only person that can know about them the most is them. And that if they could access that part of them that actually knows themselves then that will bring about healing. That's part of the process as well. Yeah, it's a reflective process, craniosacral therapy, but I do have uh, probably, um, if I I admit to it, you know, like I I wander off. I think about my own life. Um, I've gone through very stressful periods in my life and I can remember doing craniosacral treatments and in craniosacral treatments, what you do a lot of is you return to your centre, and every time I returned to my centre, I retur- I returned to this 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 life that I was l- living on the outside of the um, <laughs> the therapeutic process, which was really chaotic, <laughs> and it was like me there standing standing there with open arms, going. Well, this is me. This is who I am, and this is this is the this is the energetic state I'm in. There's no lies happening. Yeah. It's completely authentic even though it's unspoken. Yeah. And then I would return to the the processes of the treatment. Did you yeah. Uh, so I have a few things. Uh, uh
2: I think it's really interesting how um e- energetic networks happen. Uh I was living in a monastery uh at one stage, and uh, my my job was to wake everybody up in the morning. And uh so uh there was one particular morning where I woke up late and uh uh so I was late in uh waking up my uh, my section of people uh who um but there was someone else who was supposed to wake up another section of people but they also happened to sleep in on that day and through that morning uh we thought we would be behind but every single other system that was involved in our basic daily systems ran behind on that day so we just ran behind well, we ran behind together uh and so many times I've found that I've been going through particular things, or I've had a particular realization or a shift in my life, and I get a whole bunch of patients who uh, have similar reflections going on. There are these little, yeah. So uh, I think sometimes when we're in bad states, um, you know, sometimes if you're really tired, you, you can work better with someone who is also really tired. You know, like there are these uh, s- s- synchronicities that occur that that cause. Um, what you call it, resonant waves or something like this?
1: Yeah, sure, I understand uh, that. Yeah,
2: so uh, it's interesting, like, uh, we we have a particular experience and it may feel, um, yeah, like, from an idealistic point of view, not the optimum experience, um, but yeah, I, I don't know, I think it, so many things that you, you said remind me why I dislike professionalism in general, because I feel like it is that, that idea of putting on this mask and, You know, like not being a person, but being a function of a a physician or a, you know, whatever professional you're doing and taking out the human elements. And uh, I think once you take out those human elements, it it impedes this energetic flow. So, uh, yeah, like being yourself is really, um, yeah, giving people space.
1: Yeah, and um, for the listener, there's a really nice energetic flow in this particular room at the moment because of the resonance that's occurring with regards to what you just said. I totally, one hundred percent agree with that, and I rail against the um, clinical sort of approach that um, can be taken by um, people in our sort of profession, where where the the client actually walks in in a vulnerable state. They're going to sit down and actually, and hopefully, they're going to tell you as much about them. Uh, as 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 possible and uh, in in, and we're uh, hoping that they're going to be open and open enough to receive the treatment and that we are as well and if we start putting blocks up about how um, professional we are or how clinical we are or if we've got a white coat on and uh, a a sparkling white-walled room And our uh, unspoken message is that we will know more about their health than they will. And that um, the other unspoken message is that we are going to help them and that um, there's no doubt about that at all because we're so good (laughs) at what we do rather than actually the process being an empowering process for the person and a reflective process process for the person that the practitioner enters into a real relationship with the person and is not hiding behind any professional or clinical masks and that um the space is there for help and mutual help in lots of ways even though um the exchange is occurring uh, a monetary exchange perhaps is going to the uh, practitioner and the person is looking for some sort of help um, it's a mutual process, what's happening. It, just a few things on that one.
0: We uh, re- really like playing with words and like definition of words and things like that. And um, people say, what's the difference between like a therapist and a practitioner? Like when we were doing our business cards in, at the Shiatsu College, it was like, oh, do you want to be a Shiatsu therapist or a Shiatsu practitioner? And um, not that I you know think that you have to define them in these ways, but I like the idea of um, being a practitioner because you're constantly practicing your art like and practice implies a learning process and and that you can make mistakes and that it's a an exchange
1: um yeah Uh, i don't know what i love mistakes link you know like um the person who taught me about mistakes was a a musician and uh whenever we were jamming uh, and i would blow it with a bum note or something like that he'd go yeah, that kind of sounds interesting. Just do it again. <laughs> yeah. I need to chat with him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he used to live around the corner. He's passed away, unfortunately. But like, uh, it, it, he taught me that whole idea that, that um, mistakes are ideas that are, are trying to actually spring forth. You yeah, know? Cool. <laughs> and and um, I like that, and I think that's ha- what happens in in practice. One of the one of the enemies of my practice is boredom. Um cool. And uh the only way of actually breaking through that is to actually um is, is consciously breaking through it and, and to sort of approach approach the client and it may well be that you've been treating too many clients or it may well be that um you didn't want to be at work that day or whatever it is. Um but the thing to do, or the thing that I've, I've discovered to do um, in that situation is to actually sort of pull out completely, remove, and consciously become aware of what's actually going on in the process and change it up. You've got to change it up. And, and uh, for me, changing it up um, often means, um, with the craniosacral, uh, people often lie on their back. Changing it up means that they lie on their front if they're lying on their front, more than likely I will, um, it's different for me. It's, it's already very different for me and uh, it changes my approach. And um, once I change my approach, it becomes more interesting. And once I become interested, I'm no longer bored.
0: Yeah. And you're engaged. That's, that's crazy good advice for me right now because I'm just learning that. And um, because there's so many different things like at the Sha College you get the moxa Bustion and the cupping and the this and the that and me I just pretty much went with my thumbs like <laughs> at, at college like uh, anything that was a little bit out of my comfort zone or whatever I was just like ah, oh, yeah cool and I just focused on touch and and connecting um, but as I've been developing I've been thinking well what's the optimum situation to use moxa or what's the or when should I do a cup you know because I've got this idea that when a person comes into the room my job is to do the right thing, you know, and um and I should know which one of those things is the right thing. Uh, but yeah, well, that's tough, Link. That's really, really tough. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been known to be this way on myself sometimes. Um, but what you just said then awesome because just like the other day, I um uh two two clients that I treated because I've been working really physically recently. I mean, Jeremy been doing really deep work and various stuff with my own body and. Um, I've pushed the limits of what I can handle in terms of pain and various things. Um, And so I've naturally been treating a lot of people that way. Um, But then the other day um, I had a client who I felt that I needed to be extremely gentle with and it was like one of the most fun treatments I've done
1: in ages. Like, and it was, like, it was beautiful. I think what we do is we love our clients and... um, and I, I look. I had a really, really beautiful experience, probably about ten years ago now, and I was still learning um, craniosacral therapy as I am now. But uh, I was seeing a practitioner, and um, and uh, uh, for the first time. But I I'd had plenty of craniosacral therapy from another practitioner, and for various reasons, I moved to this this other person that I knew, and I was lying on the table, and um, the Part of the treatment had gotten to the stage where she was doing some really, really light work around my head and my face. And um, I was just incredibly moved by the treatment. I was incredibly touched by the treatment. And it's not unusual for me to produce a tear, or two, or three, or even more during a treatment. But I had this tear roll out of the corner of my right eye. And she kind of scooped it up with her little finger, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> the, the the whole the whole thing just made me realise that um, I came back and, and what, a, what my my feedback to her the following consultation was rah rah this has happened this has happened and you know my body felt different in this way and that way and whatever, but I was completely and totally, absolutely overwhelmed with the tenderness that was involved in the treatment. And um, if you can get tenderness into your... Because when you're involved with Shiatsu, you are working with your hands a lot. It's not an easy thing to manufacture. Uh, Care should always be there. But there's another level, and when you go to the level of tenderness, you know, like it's a very, very hard thing to resist.
2: Yeah, so it reminded me, uh, yeah, so with my teacher, uh, I'd follow him around in the clinic and he would mark points and do these diagnoses and I'd follow him around and I'd be trying to work, reverse engineer his thinking. Uh, And so I was doing this and, you know, like I was learning uh, all of these uh, technical and theoretical things, uh, working on my touch and such. But when I was on his table, the thing that I remember the most was just when he was walking around, he would just kind of absentmindedly put his hand on my back just as he was moving around or something. And it was the feeling of that touch which was like this, yeah, it was like this loving, comforting touch. Um, And yeah, it wasn't necessarily part of a, yeah, part of a specific therapy, but it was the, I guess, the essential quality of the whole therapy was contained in that touch. And on the converse, uh, in jujitsu, often we're trying to to make things as soft as possible. And I remember the first time my teacher grabbed my wrist and the way he grabbed it, um, like... It, it felt like love even though he was moving even though he was moving my wrist into this position where if he moved it a millimetre more it would snap I, I couldn't push against it because it felt like the touch cared about me even though you know like it was the strangest feeling mm. and so um, smooth yeah you can't resist <laughs> like you the skin feels so soft like mm. and
0: even when when you train, like most of the uh, black belts train on me like there is this yeah sorry but you no sorry. that's it i uh, finished my thing
1: One thing that I wanted to actually hark back to, what you were saying before, Link, was that um, with the different modalities that a Shiatsu practitioner has at their disposal with the cupping and the um, the Moxa, etc., one of the nice things about being an acupuncturist and being a uh, a Chinese-based acupuncturist, I know the Japanese acupuncturists, they kind of do rest from the treatment at different times and can move away. But the Chinese acupuncturists, a lot of them will uh, run multi-room clinics and they'll be running from room to room. Yeah. And they don't spend much time with a practitioner. And there's something which is kind of not very personal about that process, which is kind of uh, bad. But there's something about the process which gives the client lying on the table plenty of space and plenty of room. I actually uh, still these days uh, walk out of my room when people have needles in. For that very reason, sometimes I need the space p- and uh, I might just go and grab a drink or a glass of water or something like that. But sometimes I think, hey, they want me out of the room. And I think it's a really uh, reasonable thing for them to completely soften into the treatment.
0: Um, can I tell a silly an- anecdote based on, <laughs> on sure. what you just So yeah. when, I, um, when I first uh, was exposed to acupuncture and that kind of thing, I was going through a really severe depression it was caused by various things, uh, including experimenting with a lot of drugs and various things. Um, and so at the time I had, I'd completely changed my diet and whenever I'd hit these rock bottom states, I generally would stop taking drugs. Like that's always been a thing that I've sort of done. Um, and uh, nitrous oxide, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but
1: uh, um, uh, I've, I've been to the dentist yeah okay
0: well uh you don't just need to go to the dentist these days uh and at doofs and various things people have these things called uh nangs which are nitrous bulbs and i'd been experimenting with these things over the previous few years and i'd made a choice with myself at a party not long before getting this acupuncture that you know i, I can't do that anymore and in, and in, in for various reasons and um I'm lying on the table and I was super anxious at the time. So, this is maybe the fourth treatment I'd received from him or something. And he was a Japanese acupuncturist, but he would put the needles in and leave the room. Um, and I'm lying on the table and it was the first time that I actually fell asleep. Like, I was so, who knows, four gates. I don't know what he did, but it was like, I blissed out and I'd zonked out into this dream state. And in the dream, I had a Nang. <laughs> and and so I'm not sure if you've had this experience, but say for example, if I uh, quit smoking weed, um, quite often uh, in the next like month and stuff, I'll have dreams where I smoke. And in the dream, do you feel guilty about that? Yeah. So in the dream, I'll be like, I'll be smoking. I'll be like, oh, I'm not supposed to do this. And that's sometimes enough for me to go lucid, which is interesting because I'm like, wait, I don't smoke. Wait, what? What's going on? Oh, this isn't right. I'm in a dream. Whatever. But in this situation, I was like, hold on, like, uh, I I can't have Nangs, like, I I don't don't do this anymore. And it was enough to break me out of the dream, but not enough to stop the effect of the Nang. So, I wake up into the room in a, like, fully having the exact same experience as I just had nitrous. It was... Insane, <laughs> and I'm just like. And for those who don't know, it's a it's it's a it's a tranquilizer, I guess, of sort. So it has this fuzzy kind of. This similar to a feeling to uh, being choked, unconscious, I guess. But it's um, I guess more
1: pleasurable in some ways. Yeah, I thought but it was kind of like giggly, but um, like I I haven't taken it. It's it's,
0: well, I guess it affects different people in different ways. For me, uh, it always just sort of, uh, yeah, it it was like a a fuzzy warm wave that would send me into uh, a a. I call it like the reset button. So, if I, um, if I, I did, I started having nitrous when I was maybe 19 years old or 20, somewhere around then, uh, when I was partying, and um, even years later, I think it was about five years down the track, I hadn't done them for a long time, and I did them again, and I went back to the exact same place, and I jokingly refer to Nang's as, um, uh, like, tongue-kissing god or something like that, like, it's a direct a direct line to this source of, of um, complete disillusion into, uh, into nothing, I guess um, but the weird thing is that even four or five years later, I had the experience that I was the exact same person or being or the consciousness that I was when I first did it, it's really interesting and I guess hard to put properly into words, but um Anyway, it's a bit, <laughs> a bit of a sidetrack. It <laughs> is a <laughs> sidetrack. It's a good story though, Link. <laughs> um, to bring it back to uh, more professional terms, uh, not that we want
2: to go there. Yeah, I object to the yeah, word I professional. Yeah. To bring it back to... I object to, to the word professional too. Okay.
0: <laughs> to bring it back to me being a practitioner rather than a receiver of treatment, um, you talk about uh, the exchange between uh, being with someone else and depending on your esoteric persuasion. Some people believe in like energies, like negative energies, or exchanging energies with people. When I was in South America and I uh, was working with a shaman, one of the apprentices said to me, you need to uh, learn how to protect yourself during treatment. And it's something that I sort of had suggested to me before, and and my nature being that I'm quite giving and empathetic, I I tend to, I guess, maybe take on people's shit emotionally in some ways. But um,
1: what are your thoughts on that kind of concern or consideration Uh, i do have thoughts on that kind of concern and consideration Um, and they go along the lines of one i think that there's probably other people that are better qualified to kind of talk about it than me yeah but two, it hasn't stopped me thinking about it and having, <laughs> yeah. having some um, <laughs> yeah. ideas about it. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and and, and th- my thoughts are that uh, it probably does happen and it probably happens more, more than I know, but I have always thought that um, people who are worried about it are creating a fear and drawing negative energy towards them. Yeah. And uh, so I approach the energetic space with uh, no fear of... Um, taking on no fear of external invaders and that um, the only guys that are allowed in and I'm not one of those people that actually uh, tunes into guides and uh, knows that they're around but I've had plenty of clients tell me that there's some pretty cool guides around my clinical space and I'm happy for that yeah (laughs) Um, because I need all the help that I can get. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I've been told, uh, the description of my guides for a friend of mine was, um, yeah, you wouldn't want to fuck with them. <laughs> and and the nature of like, I, I, I describe myself as a leprechaun quite often, uh, due to my seemingly fortunate life and the way that danger somehow seems to like brush past my shoulder <laughs> rather than hit me <laughs> directly in the face, um, but yeah, so I like that idea of, of the no fear approach because whenever I have uh, attempted to concern myself with those things because I, I don't perceive them, because I, I you know I can't I can't hear it, I can't feel it so much. So I can't I, I naturally just second guess everything I do. If I try to <laughs> do it right again, when I'm trying to, you know, protect myself or these things, um, but the times uh, spiritually, I would say, or emotionally, where I felt the most centered and the most protected, are times when I felt that I was, uh, I say, immune, but that I, I, yeah, the f- the fear was, <laughs> fear is your only to be afraid of a few yeah you do
1: again. build this like I think that I, I might be moving um, towards a, a, perhaps a more sensitive state uh, I've been um, practicing yoga for four years and uh, practicing meditation in that pro- process a lot more often than I have, ever have in my life and I think that um, it makes you stronger it makes you more aware of yourself. And uh, it's the self-awareness which is important in the clinical process. It, in fact, I I, I, I think that um, going into the clinical process, it's kind of like a, a very selfish process. The more selfish you are, the more you look after yourself, the more you take care of yourself when you're around the client, the better the treatment.
2: Uh, We were talking uh, before about uh, pleasure and pain and these kind of responses. And, uh, yeah, so um, I I have this issue because I'm, to a degree, uh, a masochist. And uh, I had this idea that if you can enjoy pleasure and enjoy pain and enjoy silence, then you can enjoy anything. Uh, But one of my friends has been behaving towards me in a way which uh, suggests that, uh, yeah, like, for instance, the beauty of beauty is much more beautiful than the beauty of ugliness, and uh, so so there are these inherent things like like uh, yeah like beauty and like fear and like pleasure which are signposts in life, and so yeah like if I remember the first time I treated a patient with AIDS, and uh, you know obviously you're you're careful with your needles and you don't want needle stick injuries in general, but for the first time I was aware that if I caused myself a needle stick injury with a needle from this patient, I could um, really uh, damage myself. And uh, so there was this tiny bit of fear and the whole treatment, I felt like I was standing on the edge of a cliff just for this first treatment. And uh, it was really interesting. Uh, but yeah, the fear made me be careful and the fear made me wash my hands. And the, you know, like that, that fear um, suggested uh, the best possible responses, I suppose. So if you're aware, you know, like I, I was aware that I didn't want his blood inside of my body. If you become aware that you don't want someone else's energy inside of your body, then that already is a signpost like pleasure and pain, to, you know, like telling you what the best thing to do is?
0: Well, yeah, I, I like uh, my strategy that I developed, uh, so I went to Peru and um, I participated in an Iwa- a few ayahuasca ceremonies. I was there for 11 days, did five ceremonies. And when the apprentice asked me to, he yeah, told me that I need to learn how to protect myself, I asked the medicine And um, it just gave me some simple instructions on how to protect myself. And one of them was, um, when you start, just Vipassana style. or Is it Vipassana or Vipassana? Does anyone know how to actually pronounce it? No, who cares? Vipassana. I say Paris. Paris, cool. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Vipassana style, I would uh, just scan from uh, head to toe. And uh, essentially what it was saying is, just know who you are firstly, like just know where where your body is and where your boundaries of your body are. Um, secondly, uh, it gave me some other things of sort of like uh, breathing and, and expanding a kind of a bubble of protection. But the the more I um, think about it, I think the most powerful thing was just to, to know who I am and know where my boundaries are. And then just to casually say, I don't want to take any of this person's shit on and I don't want to give them any of my shit that's, that they don't want.
1: That's the cranial process and uh, for fear of um, telling people in five minutes what goes on in my two-day workshop... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to like totally <laughs> <laughs> shortchange <laughs> you via <in> this podcast <laughs> but there was always the risk. <laughs> but, but what the hell?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like a comedian. Comedians <laughs> say that you should throw out all your jokes every year so you have to like... Do a whole new thing, so this is your,
1: we're recording your workshop so that you have to make a new one next year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, 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 Energy work for body workers 2 is not going to be explained in these five (laughs) minutes. (laughs) (laughs) But nevertheless, uh, what I teach is one of the processes that that is taught to uh, the biodynamic people is the anchoring process. And you'll be interested in the anchoring process because I've touched on it with you before, Link. Yeah. And uh, all practitioners should anchor, in my mind, and all practitioners should should benefit from this. But essentially, the anchoring process is is threefold. First is a um, a grounding process where you connect to the earth, either energetically, however you ground um, ground. And and some people ground by getting in touch with their physical body. The second um, uh, uh, I should know this off by heart, but like I'm, I'm, I'm having, I'm having, <laughs> having doubts like at to this consult moment. Consult your notes. <laughs> I'll <laughs> so have to consult my would notes. Would you here. like to call a student <laughs> that you don't recently? <laughs> Hope, ho- hopefully, hopefully they actually remember. Um, but this, th- this there's is the impromptu test. That there's you a there's an orientation process, and the orientation process is actually um, a process where you pretend like you've got a guy rope coming from the back of your head and going down into the earth behind you. Now, you can have several guy ropes, but like just a, the idea of a guy rope coming off a central pole of a tent or something like that. And what that does is every time you find yourself falling into or towards the client, it brings you back. It pulls you back to a kind of a central position. Yeah. And it's really lovely. Now, the third one, I'd like to turn the microphone off.
0: (laughs) No problem. Uh, The the three
1: processes are a grounding process where the person connects with their body or or the earth. The second process is is the orienting process, which is a really important process because we can become really fascinated with um, different parts of the body at various times and uh, and it almost becomes like uh, an invasiveness um, into the person's body rather than uh, allowing that person's body to have space. And the third one is a stillness. Now the stillness is kind of a, a really uh, lovely process and, it, it, and it's, it's kind of like this solid rock of acceptance that you have inside you. But it is, it's a stillness that you have inside you. And um, those three anchors, I think they're a really lovely thing for a practitioner to have, any practitioner from a, um, a medical doctor, a surgeon, right through to people like us. Yeah, uh, even on the
2: physical point of view, the the anchoring one will help so many people in terms of their the structure of their posture and um, their grounding. Or you know, um, because we're wor- working forward and we're working generally below our center of gravity, there tends to be this. Um
1: it's yeah, it, it uh, on a physical level, it's really good for the practitioner. It reminds you to straighten up. Um, the it's really interesting the look uh, the the stillness is really good because people move into stillness during treatments and that's a really lovely thing and it's good for the practitioner to identify that to resonate with that from from their own point of stillness but uh, and and the the grounding is really good because grounding is really it's really good to be with a grounded practitioner but the orienting is amazing in the craniosacral therapy where you're just relying on this contact, that, this physical contact that you have with the person's body and this energetic touch, you might be forward one inch in your posture, but you'll be forward in your consciousness in into their space. You come back that one inch and you come back with your consciousness and all of a sudden energy moves in the client. I'll give you a really good example of this, this was, this was amazing and th- this same practitioner that I was talking to before about the, uh, the tenderness, the, the person who um, uh, taught me about tenderness, she would run tutorials and um, during these tutorials, craniosacral uh, tutorials, you would have three or four different practitioners on one body. She was one of them, I was one of them, and we had two other people on, on a particular body. And uh, we're all sort of got this gentle hands on and it kind of looks like a, a spiritual healing or something like that. But it's actually it's quite common in craniosacral therapy to have these multi-practitioner treatments. And um, what happened was a real validation. I had just been exploring biodynamic craniosacral, and she's a biomechanical craniosacral therapist. But nevertheless, her sensitivity is A+. And here we are, we're all in this body, and and I had noticed that I'd become slightly obsessed, as you do, with this person's right shoulder I was sitting on the left side but I'd kind of become really enamored with the stuckness and the blockage that was in the right shoulder and I realized that I'd probably been noticing it and invading it and looking at it and been in the right shoulder for some minutes perhaps three four five minutes and uh, being a good biodynamic craniosacral therapist I pulled out I came back to my centre, I used my orientation and my guy rope and it pulled me back out and I checked myself. I came back to my centre uh, and uh, it's a really important thing to do. And there was this shift in the right shoulder. But what was most important was this, my teacher said, to me there were three other practitioners on this body said to me what did you do and she looked straight at me and I said I just got out (laughs) 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 I stopped invading you know like the uh, the practitioner was holding on to the person's blockage in this case it was me and this is a really really common experience in the clinical space you know sometimes second by second minute by minute you're kind of pulling out you're pulling out you're pulling out all the time you you're, you're giving space rather than holding on and focusing in focusing in It kind of reminds me of the whole idea of um holism versus reductionism you're pulling out so as you can see the whole rather than focusing in so as you can fix this one particular small blockage yeah Uh um. I yeah. told you about that before, Link. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I,
0: like, I, I I often do think about it in treatment, um, but it's something I just have to keep cultivating and growing because, yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. Um, I might just bring it back to homeopathy
1: for, for a second, if that's okay. Okay. Um, I was wondering. You are talking to somebody who ha- doesn't like. I I, I practice some okay. rudimentary homeopathy. Okay, well these maybe
0: days. maybe I won't go there because I've got some other questions that I did want to kind of ask you about. Um,
1: I kind of feel slightly fraudulent talking about homeopathy.
0: Okay, <laughs> well there was a c- there was a maybe I, wa- I won't I won't put this one on the on you this
1: time. Then you can put anything <laughs> on me.
0: <laughs> okay, here's a good one then. Um, Obviously like cuz when people ask me about like shiatsu or acupuncture things, they're like oh what 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 can you treat or what does it what does it do and i know like the the <laughs> the answer is well theoretically everything um aside from you know you've just lost your leg or something like you probably should wrap a bandage around that but um like are there any well, part of this podcast, I'd like people to understand w- where they should go when they have a certain certain condition or complaint. Um, are there particular complaints or, or conditions that you think people should come and see you for? Or is it more a personality type that's going to benefit more from your treatment? Like. Ha- How do you feel about that? Are there any conditions that you're just like, don't don't bother coming to me for that? (laughs) Go to this person. Oh,
1: Link, that's a really, really hard question. Is it good that you've just asked a hard question? Yes. (laughs) Because um, sometimes I don't know and sometimes I get the wrong idea about whether a client that's just walked in the door whether I'm going to be able to help them or not and whether it's going to be a a good uh, sort of learning experience and relationship or not. But, um, yeah, so I get get really surprised by some people and some clients. And... um, I get surprised the other way as well, you know, like I get really enthusiastic about a particular client that I've seen and I've only seen them once or twice and I'm so looking forward to working with them. Yeah. And they pike out, you know, like, and, and I'm going, oh, man, you know, like that really upsets me, you know, like it, it upsets me and uh, it upsets my ego and it upsets me and I really wanted to work with them. One thing I will say, and, and I and I, I do know, know that... Uh, People need to be ready. And sometimes, you know, like um, they're at the level of um, a kind of a, a muscular massage therapist where they really just need somebody to externally come in and relax their muscles. Yeah. And uh, then there's uh, th- there's all these different sorts of levels. You know, as a practitioner, I'd like to sort of um, think that I can focus on a, a whole range of levels. In fact, a part of that panning out process is, is to allow the person to work on the level that they're working at. It's my experience, and um, I think what's happening with a lot of people is that people can be so out of balance with their, with their essence, with their core, that um, when they come in to see a practitioner like me, their essence is so pleased to see me and just says, well, we've only got one hour because there's no way he's going to come back again.
0: <laughs> so yeah. we're going to really rock his world. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. This uh, uh, Let's get some more. So th- this brings me to another uh, thing I wanted to talk about, which was the concept of over-treatment. Um, now, I... I always sort of somewhat struggled against this at the Shiatsu College because the Shiatsu College does have a very uh gentle feminine I guess approach might be a good way to, to sure. put it um uh, uh which is which is lovely and I think which is probably really good because most students who come to the Shiatsu College uh, seem to need a hug in their life like it's like it's like the Shiatsu College is, is building them up nicely and gently and then lets them out into the world yeah um but uh I always treated very slowly, like and, and, f- and I always wanted to do a lot, so I inevitably would treat for like an hour, two hours. L- recently, I've gotten that right down now. I can actually do an hour treatment and feel, feel happy with it. Oh well done. I know you thought it would never happen. Um, <laughs> I remember uh, Tracy at the College once described my treatments as the link experience. <laughs> Because <laughs> inevitably, at student clinic, I was the you know the last out of the room by about half an hour. But um, but yeah. So, I, but I always struggled against this idea because I never, I didn't feel that I was necessarily over-treating people when I was when I was doing this. Um, and I, 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 I had this this. I always had this sensation that or sort of feeling that sometimes people need two hours worth of treatment. Like, there's this idea that there's a prescribed hour. Like that's the that's the amount, and somehow over or less than that is, um, is either over or under treating. But um, yeah, I've 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 since sort of adapted that more to like dosage. I guess is the probably the best way to describe it. How how do you feel about dosage? And are that what times would you perhaps give someone a a really high dosage? Uh, say if you know you're never going to see them again, or, or whatever it is, or or a low dosage? W- are there, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's a, it's that's another good question, and I, I I do believe in the principle of overtreatment. Yeah, um, it happens. Um, the oh, link. That's a really really big question. There's so many um. There's so many bits and pieces hanging off that question. I know. But um, I don't think long a long treatment a long shiatsu treatment is necessarily a bad thing, and I don't necessarily think that a long treatment is going to be an overtreatment. Yeah, for some people sometimes, but it will be for others. Yeah. And uh, what the difficult thing for a practitioner is to work out, you know, like what's the the, the right sort of treatment for this person at this time. There's some self uh, regulation that occurs with um, craniosacral because there's there's the craniosacral will spend uh, you know like a, uh, have long pauses where there's not much actually happening in the treatment. Um. But uh, there's no doubt that craniosacral can cause some uh, really strong aggravations after a treatment. Now, an aggravation doesn't necessarily mean over-treatment. Um, An aggravation from a craniosacral therapy treatment will normally last from one to three days. um, And it may occur the following day for one to three days, but it may actually occur four or five days later for one to three days and um, that whole idea of an aggravation is not necessarily a bad thing in fact i warn my clients of it and i tell them that it's a good thing and and i tell them that the last thing that they really need at that stage is another treatment if a person's going through an aggravation from your previous treatment they don't need another treatment dosing with craniosacral is about the the frequency of treatments so if a person is really sensitive to treatments, then uh, treatments should be spaced about a fortnight to three weeks apart. If you're trying to get into and break into a person's shell and there's a, 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 a more, more solid resistance to the treatments and they're not necessarily from week to week noticing a lot of difference or they're absorbing the treatment and processing it really quickly, you can treat weekly with craniosacral. There's no doubt about that. Over-treatment, now the, the, that's, that's aggravation. Over-treatment is uh, treating too soon after the last treatment. You have to let them process the previous treatment. Um, but also over-treatment is uh, you get somebody who come in and they're, they're quite, quite sensitive and you just go and, go and go and go and go and go and they're wiped out. And they're not yeah. wiped out for one to three days and then coming good. They're wiped out the next time you see them, one week later or two weeks later, and say, well, look, you know, like I got wiped out by the last treatment, and I, I don't feel like I even got back to the stage I was before that last treatment. Yeah, wow, okay. That's that's a good sign not to treat. Well, yeah, it's interesting, because the,
0: the other day, um, I mean, I've had various interesting reactions, and as an earlier therapist, I, I got really worried, like once a girl's neck went all funny the next day and, and, like, I felt like my treatment was totally fine. And since, you know, a few weeks later, I found out there were other things she hadn't told me and it turned out it might not have been so much my fault. Um, But the other day, I was treating a client and she'd booked in for an hour and a half. Um, And, I mean, I'd done diagnosis. I don't, for some reason at the moment, I'm not really charging people for my diagnosis, which might be a bit silly, but um, I'd done maybe... I'd gone almost to an hour of, of actual treatment time, and I just had this sensation, this overwhelming sense that I wanted to stop, but I felt like I'd agreed to do <laughs> this hour and a half treatment, so, um, I, and I, I guess I didn't feel like I'd communicated enough beforehand to just stop there and be like, okay, I think that's, that's enough. But um, I'm now just well, as I'm listening to you, realizing that I should actually say that sort of stuff and and perhaps listen to that that inner, um, inner sensation and and stop treatments there. But have you how do you, how do you feel about that? Like in terms of people's expectations of what they're going to receive, and do you ever just go, that's it, and I'll still get my full fee, please? Or or how do you, yeah? What what's your thoughts?
1: I think that um, if the practitioner is um, evolved enough to know that the treatment should stop 20 minutes before the end of the session, then you've got a good practitioner and you should pay him the full fee. Yeah. So that sounds more like a,
0: an education of the clients. <laughs> I would tell them,
1: I would explain and I have done so. Yeah. Um, I've got a client at the moment uh, that went through a particular phase who, um, uh, yeah, I was definitely inclined to undertreat her in the sessions and undertreating with craniosacral was, uh, instead of 50 minutes hands-on, it was more like 35 or 40 minutes hands-on and I just told her. And uh, I broke it up. I broke the treatment up and uh, I returned to um, doing just some uh, massage actually and um with her i was massaging her legs i was massaging the stomach meridian which is a really nice meridian to actually sort of work on just with thumbs and palms yeah and um it kind of uh it was it was really nice thing to actually do you know it felt more more solid and it felt grounding and it felt like um uh it felt like the right thing to do the, the, so the the craniosacral was kind of like stirring her up and it was the length of the treatments that was stirring her up she was going deeper than her kind of conscious self really um wanted and it was stirring up heaps and heaps of issues and aggravating mm. some of her conditions yeah so perhaps
0: um like you an, an alternative for that time because i'm like i'm always inclined um to do some kind of sort of counseling um, after treatments, like I'm, I'm really interested in that kind of work. Um, but perhaps if I felt that I needed to end a treatment, um, I could offer like ten, fifteen minutes of stretches and and things like that. Are there are there are there like you said with the stomach meridian, or s- are there various things you think are are like safer to to do once someone is at a potentially over-treated place, or do you just stop?
1: Yeah, yeah, you see, like, I, I'm coming from a place where w- the client that I was talking about just then was kind of like her sensitivities to craniosacral therapy. And, um, you know, like, ev- the thing is, when when you start sort of like using this touch of craniosacral therapy, whenever you do the acupressure on the um, stomach meridian, it's kind of like with the same thing. It's just a, it's a more physical touch. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... To a certain degree, I felt like it was backing off for me. You know, like it was uh, it was um, slightly backing off. The other thing that I did with her is that the the, the actual length of treatment time, I, I um, allowed her to talk more at the start of the consultation, and um, I, I allowed myself to talk more towards the end of the consultation. So, um, instead of starting five minutes into the consultation, we started. 10 to 15 minutes into the consultation. So as she was talked out about what had happened last time, and that was really important because it was educating me as to the strong response that she'd had from the last treatment, that she was still possibly having that response. And um, it was important for her to tell me, you know, like it's amazing. You know, like uh, with craniosacral therapy, you don't need to take a history. In fact, sometimes it just gets in your head and you, you start thinking about what you should be doing during the treatment. Yeah. The best cranial treatments are the ones where you don't know anything about what's going on in the client. You just touch the client for the f- first time. And just uh, it's the relationship between the bodies that is important and you treat according to that rather than any preconceived idea about what the person's told you in the history. Do you seem like you had something that you wanted to say a moment ago or am I...?
0: Imagining things. Okay, cool. Um, how are we doing? Oh, we're getting pretty close to the end. Well, maybe we should wrap it up around with there. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, mention in regards to the last few things we were saying?
1: No, I'm fine, Link. Cool. I've enjoyed
0: myself. I'm glad. I have too. It's been awesome. I hope we can do it again sometime soon.
1: No worries. Take care. So that's it for today's episode.
0: Scott and Jeremy will return in episode two, which I will be releasing in a week's time. And later on in the series, you'll hear interviews with other teachers from the Shiatsu College, including Scott Billings, Angela Lane, Con Margaritas, as well as interviews with other practitioners that have inspired me personally. You'll also notice that the audio quality improves as I upgrade my equipment and my recording technique is refined. You can find more episodes at inkalot.net, which is www.inkalot.net. Or an even easier way is to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Or if you're using an Android phone, there are podcast apps available. My favorite being the Podcast Addict app, which has a really good interface and is really easy to use. But there are plenty of others you can choose from. The acoustic guitar music you've heard throughout was actually my dad, Stuart McKelvin. And this outro music you're hearing right now is the Melbourne band Miso. If you'd like to hear more of Miso's music, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Miso. That's T-U-N-E-I-N-T-O-M-I-S-O. And you can also find them on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again soon.